So we're coming back to 1 Samuel. Uh, 1 Samuel 26 is our text today. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 26. And um, I titled our sermon, Deja Vu Distress. What to do when our faith is repeatedly tried. The expression déjà vu is known to most of us. According to the Oxford Dictionary, it is used to describe a feeling of having already experienced the present situation. It's a a feeling of déjà vu. It's a French expression dating way back from the early 20th century. And it literally means already seen. Already seen this before. I'm pretty sure that most of us has experienced this feeling, and sometimes it's a good sensation. Um, As we get to experience a pleasant situation for a second time, the joy of the experience is added to the joy of relieving the past sweet moment again. But most of the times, though, we use the expression in a complaining tone. At times that we experience the same argument with a family member or the same nagging uh, words from a spouse or the annoyance of a roommate. As Christians, we can attest that some negative experiences seem to repeat themselves a lot in our lives. The temptation during these déjà vu moments is to raise our hands and say, oh, not again, attitude. Though we might be frustrated with them, these experiences are never wasted by God. The Apostle Peter exhorts us to not be surprised when we face fiery trials, which comes upon you for testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. And the half-brother of Jesus, James, says in his letter that moments like this should be considered a reason for us to be joyful. He says, Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produce endurance. James 1, 2, and 3. Is James a sadist? Does he enjoy pain? What does he mean, consider all joy? Why is the repeated and the varied testing of our faith should be considered as something positive? He gives the reason so that we will grow through those repeated moments. We will grow in perseverance and endurance. He adds, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The purpose of us experiencing these repeated experiences is that God will grow us. God is in the work of perfecting us. These deja vu moments are part of the process. So in our text today, we'll notice that David... Um, if he lived in our days, he would probably say, oh, this is a deja vu moment. This happened before. 
in chapter 24, very, very similar situation that David experiencing here. All right, so with no more wait, let's just dive in into our text. Um, I'm going to read through verses 16, but we're going to cover the rest of the chapter, and I'll I'll get there when I get there. (laughs) So thus says the word of God. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakelah, which is before Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped in the hill of Hakelah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road. And David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies. And he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped. And David saw that the place where Saul lay and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army, and Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside of the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner, the people, um, were lying around him. Now, mind you, this is evening. He's sleeping. So Abner, um, then Abishai, said to David, Today. God has delivered your enemy into your hand. He's whispering, you want to wake them up? Now, therefore, please let me strike him with one spear to the ground. With one stroke. I will not strike a second time. But David said to Abishai, and I'm going to read it a little bit out loud because I know some people struggle listening. <laughs> But you see there's a whispering, okay? Do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come that he dies or he will go down into the battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now, please take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go down. So David took the spear and the jug of water that, uh, from beside Saul's head and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because of a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood up on the top of a mountain at a distance with a large area between them 
And David called to the people and Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Now, he is far away, and his purpose is to wake them up. Will you not answer, Abner? That's how he's saying it. Then Abner replied, Who are you who calls for the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Or who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded your lord the king? For one of the people came to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, all of you must surely die because you did not guard your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was at his head. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, who as we come to this text, an uh, interesting situation that David is facing, like a repeat, uh, continuous persecution that he is experiencing, and we all do have those deja vu moments where our faith is put to test again and again. Lord, I do pray that you would open our understanding as we look to the example of David here and learn from what you were trying to teach us through this text. We humbly ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so um, if you haven't gotten, I have a, a, a little outline there on the table where you can follow uh, the passages that I'm reading um, and um, the major points and some questions there in the back for you to reflect when you get home and think about the sermon. All right. So, um, this uh, chapter 26, really, it, it's like a, a mozzarella in your, in your cheese pizza. You know, you're, um, it, it's, it's, it's sandwiched between chapter, 24, chapter 25 and chapter 26. It's kind of uh, something being repeated in chapter 24 and 26. Um, in both circumstances... David has an opportunity to avenge himself, but he doesn't. And then in the between, we have the story of David and Nabal, as um, Jake. Um, so that middle story with Nabal, David also had an opportunity to avenge himself. And yet, I mean, he was stopped by this wise woman that talked to him, and then you're, you're being a fool, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and, and he does not act and avenge himself. So the, the theme really of these three chapters, chapter 24, 25, 26, is let vengeance in the Lord's hand, you don't avenge yourself. So they recount different situations, but they share the common theme, the avoidance of executing personal vengeance. I like the way that some commentators describe David here as a flea that refuses to bite. A quick survey of the, major, the three major sections of this passage, verses 1 through 12, 13 to 16, and 17 to 25, finds four speeches of David, and these carry much of the theological theme of this passage. Observe that two that Saul's spear is mentioned at least once in each of these three main sections, sometimes along with his water jug. In all, there are six references to Saul's spear, 
And you will remember from our class that whenever a word is being repeated, the author wants to draw attention to it. It is the dominant symbol of this episode, and of course, it is essential that David have Saul's spear, verse 16, as irrefutable evidence that he really was in Saul's camp over Saul's body, able to end Saul's life, but he wouldn't. The bit, detail, uh, the bit of detail heightens the tension of the plot because the proximity of Saul's spear highlights the temptation that fa David faces to execute his enemy with just one quick stroke. It's right there by his head. Saul's spear has been mentioned before. You will remember on chapter 18 that Saul tried to kill David with that very spear. And then again in chapter 19, he tried to kill David with that spear. And then once he threw that, um, that spear to David's best friend, Jonathan, Saul's own son. So in chapter um, 22, verse 6, it is mentioned again that before Saul launches his campaign against David and murders the priests of Nob for allegedly siding with David, Saul's spear symbolizes the king's hostility toward David and the mortal danger that Saul represents for him. So that spear is important. That's a threat for David, but David is not going to use that as a threat uh, to, to execute his enemy. But now David could rid himself of the threat to his life by grabbing his enemy's spear and transferring it to its location from the ground to Saul's head. So what, does the point, what is the point that this spear make? The keynote of chapter 26 is that the anointed king receives assurance that the kingdom will certainly be his. Receiving assurance, however, and feeling assured might be two different things, right? Um, many times David heard, I'm going to be king one day. I don't need to do anything to, to be in that position. I don't need to avenge myself. God will take care of it. He kept hearing again and again, but yet he's suffering and he's being persecuted and he's being hunted down like a flea. Certainly, David's faith does not reach the end of its struggle in this chapter. Like a deja vu, David continues to face the unrelentless pursuit from Saul. So today we will develop the teaching of this chapter in terms of the faith of the Lord's servant. So the faith that David demonstrated. So our three points are the patience that faith endures, the patience that faith endures, the confrontation that faith instructs, and then lastly, the hope that faith holds. So let's start with the patience that faith endures. From verses 1 through 5 there, uh, if you follow along with me, you will read about these uh, Saul's um, Judahite allies, the, the Zephites. They were a Calebite from the, from the tribe of Caleb, sub-clan, and they continued to supply the king with valuable intelligence report on David's whereabouts. Perhaps they were motivated in the present instance by jealousy. Remember, um, Nabal was from what tribe? Caleb, Caleb's tribe. 
Now, because David married Abigail from that tribe, all the riches from the tribe of Caleb now are with David. So maybe out of despite, they uh, turned him in and they told on him. David's marriage to the richest member of the Calebite clan may have been perceived as an usurpation of rights reserved for one of their own. In the present situation, the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and informed him that David was hiding on the hill of Hakila, which faces Jeshimon. An unidentified site in the general area east of Ziph, where they have previously spotted David. So that is the wilderness of Judah. Remember the few weeks back, I showed you a few pictures of that dry, weary land. That's exactly how Psalm 63 describes it. David and his men have attracted Saul's movement as Saul and his smashed troops arrived south of Hebron near Ziph. And as Saul settled in the hill of Akela for his own camp, David must have been on higher ground nearby and saw the precise place where Saul and Abner camped. Saul was lying in the middle of the camp with the troops camping around him. 3,000 troops, remember that. That's the way David and Abishai found them when they slittered into their camp by night. Plus, Saul's spear is stuck into the ground near his head. On verse 8 through 11, the emphasis really falls in the conversation between Abishai, this, his um, nephew, who was kind of a, his armor bearer or a soldier that fought with him. Abishai may have surmised that they were on a ranger raid, ranger raid, an attack of terror to dispose of Saul and Abner in particular. In any case, the opportunity was too good to pass up, and Abishai broke into this most theological whisper. Today, God has delivered into your hand. Now, therefore, let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke. I'm not going to need to do it twice, just once. It's interesting that people bring God's name, right, to sinful pursuits. David whispers back, also in a theological tone. You know, you're saying that this is what God wants me to do? That's not at all what he wants me to do. Do not destroy him, for can I stretch, who can stretch out his hand against the Lord anointed, against the Lord's king, and be without guilt? This behavior was, um, would bring guilt to David. So it was evident that David, uh, that a clear conscience mattered more than peace achieved by bloodshed. So he then explains in verses 10 through 11 here, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come, that he dies, or he will go down to the battle and perish, and the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please take the spear that is in his head and the jug of water and let us go. Here, David is expressing the same patience, the same patience that he had in chapter 24. So let's see a little bit of this repeat here. 
Chapter 24, verse 6. Very similar situation. Uh, this time, Saul is wide awake. He is in a cave using the bathroom. And David sneaks in and cuts a piece of his robe. Um, and then he goes far away again and he yells at them. This says, um, when he was offered the opportunity to kill him right there. So he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. All right. You said it once, and then he's going to say again on verse 10, and here's the situation being repeated. And he's patient. The same thing. You know, he keeps persecuting me. And I keep letting him go free. I keep letting him go free. How is that possible? For one thing, David has learned something from this near fiasco with Nabal in chapter 25. He was taught a lesson that you don't avenge yourself. In that situation, you will remember what happened in chapter 25 with Nabal, that foolish rough, gruff man that was mean and refusing to help David. Chapter uh, 25, verse 38. About 10 days later that Nabal had that interaction with David, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. So um, here when David is using the word strike, maybe the Lord will strike Saul like he did with Nabal. So I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to do anything about it. God might do it. The use of the same verb may indicate that David has learned that the Lord can be trusted to handle both fools and oppressors when such matters are left in his hand. The Lord may be pleased to dispose of Saul as he did Nabal. Or then again, he may not. Yahweh may work by some other method. He may permit Saul a natural death. I mean, one day he will pass. And he might see Saul, or maybe Saul will be swept in battle. He'll be killed in battle. There are numerous possibilities. The important matter is that the Lord will handle Saul's destiny. It is not in David's hands. Abishai might have been severely disappointed with that statement. We'll never know. It would take much, but it wouldn't take much imagination um, to hear him telling others, let's just think here, Saul was snoozing right in front of my feet and David wouldn't let me do it. <laughs> I risked my life tonight for just a canteen and a spear, <laughs> a water jug and a spear. Now, I want to make a couple of observations here on David's restraint. Why is that that he, his faith informs his behavior? Note that faith sets imagination to work. Uh, Pastor um, Ralph Davis explains this, that David can conceive of various ways in which Yahweh, the Lord, will deliver him from Saul. He may work directly as he did with Nabal. 
or he may bring Saul's end in a, a more natural way. The primary matter here is that the Lord will see to it. Yet, lively faith can envisions, envision numerous ways in which God can work, can work. And there is nothing wrong with that so long as one realizes that the Lord is not restricted to our range of possibilities and methods. It's nothing wrong for you to pray and ask God how he could answer that prayer. Yet, you, you submit those prayers to the Lord with the humility to say, I don't know everything that needs to be known. God knows better. Many contemporary believers, in fact, would do well to let their imaginations run free regarding the adequacy and the sufficiency of God. Regretfully, we probably associate imagination with falsehood or make-believe, but a faithful person, right, is a person full of faith. <laughs> um, but faithful imagination cannot be accused of that. In fact, one might say that faith needs imagination to pull out all the stops, even, it is, even if it is even to begin to grasp the grandeur and majesty and ability of Yahweh. Turn your Bibles to um, Isaiah 40. Um, we've been talking about our class, the use of uh, figures of speech and uh, illustration that sometimes the biblical authors use, and God is using here in Isaiah 40 to make a point to us. In all these moving comparisons and questions and pictures they're giving here is to stir up our sense of imagination. So, uh, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Now, we read this, what is he talking about here? I mean, have you tried to hold water on your hand? What does it happen? You can't hold much. Maybe a few ounces of water. But it's saying that, imagine all the waters in the entire planet Earth. God just holds all that water in the palm of his hand. What does he mean by that? He's big. <laughs> He's far greater than we can imagine. And he goes more. He marked off the heavens by the span. And he, he had a, just, a, just a measuring tape to measure the universe. <laughs> it's a little tiny measuring tape for him. And calculated the dust of the earth by me the measure. And weighed the mountains in a balance, in a scale. <laughs> Just think about the highest mountain. Is, is that Everest? And, and at all the other mountains, and, and you try to weight it in a scale, it would, it would be humanly impossible to measure and it says that God just measures them like in a scale. And the hills is a pair of scales. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or who is his counselor inf that informed him? Isaiah's point here is God is far greater. He is far bigger. And what are you doing in not trusting him and thinking that you are wiser than him? So skip a few verses here to 26. The prophet calls the people out and he says, 
lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars. Just look at creation. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. To all the stars at all times in the universe, God already had called them by name. I mean, uh, scientists still naming stars even today. But God already knows each one by their own name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. How does that connect with our life? Next verse. Why do you say, O Jacob, O you assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? God is so big, he's so great, but he's not involved. He's not involved with my life. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary and tired um, or, or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives the strength to the weary and he and him who lacks might, he increases in power. So how come David is able to endure patiently that persecution? Because he trusts in a God that gets involved, in a God that cares for him. So as long as we do not try to imprison God's freedom, we should feel perfectly free to speculate that he can do anything to deliver us and to care for us. Now, there is a counterpoint here. Note that although David did not know how providence would work, how God would orchestrate all these events to, to bring about uh, Saul's death, he knew what obedience required. He knew that killing him was not the right thing to do. He could imagine diverse ways that God might take Saul out of the way, but he did not know how God would do it. There was something that he did know. The Lord did not want David himself to get rid of the crowned king. The situation is not limited to great figures of salvation history like David. Any believer will face quandaries in which he does not know how God will bring relief, but he does know what he is and what God will do for him. For example, a, a Christian can guess how Christ will bring resolution to marital problems that they might be experiencing. He does know that, for instance, committing adultery is not a way out of this. It sounds straightforward. God's ways will frequently baffle us, but God's will will be sufficiently clear to lead us in the meantime. God's ways may not be clear, but our way is. He has already told us how we ought to live. We may wait for God's providence, but we already have God's law. And that's what we need for the moment. When the fulfillment of God's promises are delayed, God's chosen uh, servants must resist the temptation to force the issue and must instead do what is right and wait for God's timing. God's chosen servants must resist the temptation to, first, to force the issue and must instead do what is right and wait for God's timing. As in the earlier episode, David's behavior is a model for how we all should act. 
David's restraint is an example for all of those who, promet, who holds the promise from God, God's word. It encourages the oppressed people of God to wait on God and to take refuge in his justice rather than trying to force the issue through their own efforts. All right, that leads us to our third point. Sometimes faith will drive us to confront sinful behavior. And that's exactly what David does here. He confronts, um, one, first, uh, conf- there is a confrontation for a neglection of duty. David's dialogue here with Abner, um, Saul's armor bearer, his bodyguard, who is supposed to protect him, and David is calling him out. A reader's mind simply refused to be quiet when reading uh, verses 6 through 11. How is it, one may ask, that David and Abishai gain unhindered access to Saul's and Abner's location? How can they carry such an animate debate, though we assume by gesture whispering, without waking the troops up? How can they flinch, filch the spear and water jug with no interference? Why are they, the anti-David forces so helpless? I mean, 3,000 soldiers and they did not pick up on those true guys <laughs> passing through them. At the end of the section, the narrator explains. Verse 12, what does he say? No one saw or knew or was awakened because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. We are watching not merely David's brave attitude, but the Lord's hand at work. This sleep of Yahweh, or the sleep of the Lord, suggests a deep trance-like sleep. That's the same term used in Genesis chapter 2, 21, when the Lord brought Adam into a deep sleep. And he performed a surgery and took the rib and made into a woman. That is the same expression there. Saul is helpless because Yahweh made him that way. Once it was by God's mightiest spirit, now it is by his deep sleep. It, it must be absolutely unnerving for uh, them. David escapes to a higher and safer ground and destroys the deep sleep into a piercing cry in the night. Will you not answer, Abner? Come on, wake up. You're supposed to do this job. Abner staggers to collect his wits, probably still uh, uh, half sleep, while David continues his taunt. David's satire is simple. For such a premier career, a man like Abner has proven to be a lousy bodyguard. Indeed, all of them have. He says that you, he, initially he's talking to Abner, and then he says, you all have failed this. So all these 3,000 troops that he had, the whole lot of them are sons of death. That is, all Saul's men should be court-martialed and executed for failure to protect the life of the king. David isn't joking. The evidence is damning. Look where the king's spear and the water jug is. I could have killed him, but I didn't. One needed to be awake to figure this out. For all his protection, Abner and the 3,000 troops, Saul is just defenseless. 
the omnipresent symbol of his power has effortlessly pilfered. David has disarmed Saul. He took his spear away. A clear parable, really, of future developments because now Saul is totally vulnerable. With both, um, both truth and irony, Saul could have said, there is but a step between me and death, like David said before, right? Even at night, one thing was clear. Saul's power is gone. Nothing can keep David from obtaining the kingdom. It was a sign for Saul, but also for David. David should receive its encouragement as an assurance, assuring token of the Lord. God, uh, the Lord tends to be this kind of God, one who reaches out to his tired and wearied servants. In the midst of their discouragement, he grants them some plain token, some small evidence that he has not forgotten his word and promises to them. He sends those encouragements. Sometimes the Lord's encouragements can be quite dramatic. At other times, rather mundane. So um, actually, John Flavel wrote about this lady, uh, Mrs. Honeywood. Um, and she was a strong believer, but she was facing a lot of doubts about her salvation and she was just afflicted and tormented and afraid and he she was so desperate one day the minister John Flavel was meeting with her and and just compiling reasons against her desperate conclusions well let's go back to scriptures or, or what is God's promising you It was then um, that she was meeting. It was then that she took a Venice glass from the table and said, Sir, I am sure to be damned to hell as this glass is to be broken. And then she threw that glass on the ground. And she said, You know, this is inevitable. This glass is going to break. And just like this thing is going to break, I am going to be destroyed. Well, um, and to the astonishment of both, the glass remained intact and unbroken. Obviously, the minister did not fail to apply the assuring sign. All right, you see? You can't be sure of uncertainties, but you can be sure of God's promises. You can rely on them. You can trust them. If he said he was going to save you, he saved you. You yourself cannot take yourself out of God's hand. Obviously, we shouldn't go around looking for <laughs> glasses experiments to see if God's going to answer us. That's not the point. It is enough to have God, a God who knows when we may need such and who is in the midst of pressures like um, pressures likes to show us why we should go on believing. Then moving to verses 17 and 20, and I haven't read this, this one quite yet. So, then Saul recognized David's voice, now Saul is awake, and said, Is this your voice, David, my son? So Saul's stomach must have launched when he recognized David's voice in the dark. 
It was no dream. He was really, he really was at the hill of Hecla, listening to David's voice across the great gulf. Obviously, he went away to the other side of a mountain so he could just yell at him and, and still be safe. As he recovered his wits, Saul gave David the my son treatment. It's, it, it's just so hypocritical. This is the second, you know, I, I don't know how many times he had already called David here my son. Uh, you're trying to kill your son? But David fastened not on David's address, but on his justice. Verse 18, he, David says, Why then is my Lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done? And what evil is in my hand? David presses on this major concern and underscores its importance by expressly and formally requesting that Saul listen to the words of his servant. And here's what he says. Saul, pay attention. Just listen up. Verse 19, if, if the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is man, cursed are they before the Lord, for they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground away from the presence of the Lord, for the King of Israel has come out to search for a single flea just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. So here's David's logic. Um, God, it, maybe God has stirred you up against me. Maybe it was people. And if it were people, they were wrong. There's nothing that you can hold against me. I have been but a faithful servant of yours that fought your battles um, just a, a quick observation here on the word partridge. That he's saying like a, a partridge in the mountains. I didn't know what that was, but that is a bird, okay? Or a, a, a calling bird. And, you know, some commentators think that David is doing a wordplay here on, um, with, with Abner, who said, who is calling for the king? Well, it is this partridge here, this calling bird here is calling for the king defenseless. Why are you persecuting me? In any event, David is trying to make sense of it all. He considered maybe Yahweh has instigated Saul's harassment as a judgment on David. In such case, David should offer a sacrifice to appease the Lord. But more likely, Saul is edged by vicious advisors or personal envy, a possibility that David kindly does not suggest his unrelenting hunt for David has pushed David to the point of leaving the land of Israel, the inheritance of the Lord. So what is he going with this? You know, you're pushing me to go away from the land. You're pushing me to worship other gods. Uh, when did Saul tell David to worship other gods? Well, he didn't. That had to do with the promises, and where was the temple of the Lord? Where did he live? It, it was in the tabernacle. Right? It was in the ark. So by leaving the land of Israel, David was losing the access that he had to God. 
by being forced to leave the country, he was being forced to not be in God's presence anymore. So that was his logic. Now, um, I don't think uh, David uh, really believed that um, by leaving Israel, he would have to worship other gods. I, I don't believe that. Uh, a proof of that is, um, turn to Psalm 139, a psalm that very likely was written during this time. So is God confined to the land of Israel? Hmm. Here's David talking about that God knows everything. He is everywhere. He says, such knowledge, verse 6, is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? You know, everywhere I go, God is with me. That's what he's saying. There's nowhere that I go that God is not with me. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I made my bed in Sheol, or in, if I, you know, basically saying, if I die, behold, your face are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, and if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, the light around me will be night. Even darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. So nowhere we can go that God is not there. There's no place um, um, limiting God's presence. So suffice to say that David would have made a poor uh, evangelical so to speak. He would never have been content with his study, study Bible or a prayer list or a quiet cave. No, he wanted to be at the temple. He wanted to go and worship God there. He wanted to go to the, to the feasts that they had, to the festivals. Psalm 63 that Jake read to us earlier, David states that. I yearn. You know, I'm here in this wilderness and this weary and, and dry land. What do, you, what do you think? What do you desire when you are in a dry place and that is, it's hot? What do you want? A glass of refreshing water. Well, Coca-Cola didn't exist then. <laughs> <laughs> and here's what David says. You know, in this dry place here, you know what I really, really want? It's not a glass of water, not a glass of Coke. <laughs> oh God, you are my God, and I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you, and my flesh yearns for you. More than the desire of a physical need being supplied, I want God above everything. Thus, I have seen you in the sanctuary, key there. Sanctuary, what is he talking about? The temple. To see your power and your glory. I am going to miss that. And I do not want to go, I don't want to be kicked out of the land so that I don't have more access to the sanctuary. How many of us 
would be extremely disappointed if they were not able to come to church for a season. David was disappointed. He was fearful. And then lastly here, um, the hope that faith holds. You know, so this faith give us the strength to be patient. This faith give us courage to confront error. And this faith also give us hope. And so in verses 25, 21 to 25, so the last section there, and we're going to read. Um, Saul responds to David's speech with a confession, invitation, and promise. And a, a rationale, really kind of empty. He says, I have seen, verse 21, return my son David, for I will not harm you again because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and I have committed serious error. Verse 22, we read that David responds to Saul abruptly. He didn't even let him finish. Behold the spear of the king. Now let one of your young men to come over and take it. Saul can save his breath and his promises. Of course, some readers may question David's bluntness. After all, Saul really sounds sincere this time, doesn't he? I made an error. I mean, he had done that before in chapter 24, and yet... Here he go again. He goes again. Whether Saul expresses a momentary sincerity or a deranged sincerity or a deceptive sincerity makes no difference because Saul has been a fool. There is no reason for David to be one. On that sense, Saul spoke the truth, but David need not to be duped by his lies anymore. Verse 23 Instead of returning to Saul, David will remain with God. He says, the Lord will repay, verse 23, the Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and for his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today, but I refused to stretch my hand against the Lord's anointed. David then proceeds to cast himself and his future Upon his only hope. And what is that? Verse 24. Now behold, as your life, your Saul's life, was highly valued in my sight this day, so may my life be highly valued in the sight of Saul. Is that what he said? In the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me from all my distresses. We might have expected David to say, so my life be highly esteemed, like I esteemed your life, you esteem my life. But that's not what he said. David is not looking to Saul or hoping in Saul or not believing in him. He places himself under Yahweh's eyes and Yahweh's hands. So I think that is an encouragement to us sometimes when we are, um, have broken relationships and people disappoint us, and they lie to us, and they turn back on their word. We don't look for them for hope. We look to the Lord. The writer's closing sentence draws a line across the story. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. 
Very matter of fact, this is the last time that David and Saul encounter in a few chapters here. Saul is going to find his demise. Now, one is tempted to say that um, both go on alone here, but the, the, true is, the truth is that David does not go alone. The Lord comes with him. David puts no trust in Saul's empty promises because he understands how fickle men can be. Saul had made that promise before, but he couldn't keep it. Um, there was a book that I read um, some time ago. Uh, it's called Knowing God. And the author, Packer, explains, you know, um, in speaking of people, in the course of life, we change. Sometimes we become tougher or more emotional or more patient toward others or more impatient toward others. We learn how to trust more in people or to become suspicious of them. All this happens because creatures change, but God does not. In him, there is no variation or shadow of turning, as James 1.17 says. Sometimes people say things that they don't mean, simply because they don't know their own minds. In the same way, because, of our, per- because our perception changes, not rarely, we, we found out our own inability to sustain what we have said in the past. Right? We know that we fail in our own words. But that doesn't happen with the words of God. They remain forever as valid expressions of his mind and his thinking. Oh, how fickle we are in our plans. I, I could not put in better words as the theologian um, A.W. Pink. He says, one of two things make two uh, make." Uh, take a person to change their mind and to reveal their plans. The lack of caution to anticipate all the events or the lack of caution to execute them. Right? We, we don't know what might happen. and We can't guarantee that we're going to do what we, we promise to do. But because God is both all-knowing and all-powerful, he never needs to revise his decrees. Whatever he said he was going to do, he will do it. Oh, how comforting it is to know that God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it, or is spoken that he will not fulfill it? Answer is, Let's pray. God, our God, we come before you with a contrite heart. We are afflicted many times and repeated times. We face uh, problems and and conflicts with others. Um, People disappoint us. And yet we want to hold our trust and confidence in you. Lord, I do pray that you would use Uh, Maybe the trials that many might be facing today here to look for you, to to grow in patience and hope in you that comes through faith. Pray, Lord, that you would bless the rest of our service here for your glory in your son's name. Amen.